0: Well, if you're visiting with us today, we are in the book of Hebrews. And we do what's called expositional preaching here, which which is taking the main point of the text, making it the main point of the sermon, contemporized and delivered with an unction for change. We do believe that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, and that the strengthening of our faith comes through. Hearing and responding to the Word of God. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to grow us spiritually. So with that expositional preaching, we choose to do it verse by verse. And I pick up this week where I left off last week. It also makes the pastor have to be pretty sharp because the congregation is reading ahead and studying ahead. And I love to hear it from you all in the morning. How are you going to take this, pastor? I've been studying this. Seems to me he's going this direction. And I say, well, you're going to have to wait, and we'll study it together. So I'm excited. This is part two this morning of a sermon called Solidarity with the Sons. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. The timeless truth is this. The eternal Son became like us, suffered to save us, and identifies with us. And that's particularly important because the audience here, the original audience, is suffering. So I want to take just a few minutes to bring us up to speed in this sermon. And then if you'll allow me, before we progress on, I'm going to take us from the beginning of Hebrews all the way to verse 16, and we'll pick up there. As I mentioned, this is a two-part message. It's within the middle of an argument on Christ's superiority to the angels. And it appears that there's some real pressure by this Jewish Christian audience to go back to Judaism. Most likely it's their family, their friends, they're putting pressure on them. You know, hey, cuz, we don't really care what you believe, but, but you know, we're Jews. And there's no way that Jesus, fellow could be the Messiah. And he certainly can't be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. We don't care what you believe about him. Make him a good prophet. Make him an angel. Make him a great teacher. But if you'll just let that go, why don't you come back into the fold? Come back to the synagogue. Be with your family. Look, it's not a first century thing to have pressure from the family, right? Blood's thicker than water. Or so the saying goes. So there's a lot of real pressure. Add to that, they're probably in Rome. And as you know, in the 60s in Rome, Nero's in control. And Christians are suffering. They haven't suffered to the point of death yet, but the threat is real. And they are realizing what the Bible says about being a Christian this side of heaven. Suffering. Is part and parcel of the life. 2 Timothy 3 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But let's be honest. When you're in the thick of it, when you are surrounded by suffering from people in places that you never expected to get it from, it's, it's easy to doubt. That's one of those things where no one wants to say amen, but everyone's collectively saying it in their head. It's easy to doubt, am I going crazy with this Christian thing? Does anyone understand what I'm going through? We must be doing something wrong as a church. I mean, people are leaving. The world thinks we're nuts. Maybe we are a cult. We know that these doubts are going through their minds, not only because the author is trying to convince them of Christ's superiority, but he also warns them not to drift. And he's just come upon one of these warning passages in the first four verses of chapter 2. And he warns them of this danger of drifting, tells them to hold fast. They need to realize that neglecting is rejecting. That was a phrase we used. Look back, if you will, at verse 3 of chapter 2. In this warning passage, he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? When the honeymoon is over and suffering comes, it feels heavy. Doubts are bigger. You question your sanity. And I think they're saying, no one understands. And the author is saying, Jesus understands. Jesus understands. And thus we see the title of this sermon, Solidarity with the Sons. Let me bring us up to speed here. Look back at verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When we can't physically see him in control, When it looks like chaos reigns, and I cannot see Him on His throne, the author says, see Him in Scripture. Trust in what you can't see, so then you can trust in what you cannot. Remember, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Prince of Heaven, sunk Himself into human flesh and became a man. You have the Word. You have the prophecy. You have the eyewitnesses. And he suffered. But he didn't suffer by accident. It was part of God's plan. And it was part of God's plan to bring many sons to glory. If you think you're suffering, first century believers, if you think you're suffering, 21st century believers, and no one understands, let me assure you, Jesus understands. He became fully man. He has felt every pain, physical, emotional, spiritual. He has endured every temptation. And he knows the weaknesses of our human frame. And he stands in solidarity with us. He's been down on the field. And that solidarity is not just identifying with us as human, that would be enough. But it's so much more than that. Literally, it's entering into our world and changing our situation. Remember, because of Adam's sin and our own sin, that that we were at enmity with God. We We were traitors. Creation rebelled against the Creator. And Jesus not only became a man but he actually set his chin like a flint to the cross, lived the life that we could not live and died the death we deserved, and changed our situation. He doesn't just stand with, literally he stands in front of. And we saw last week, not only was he incarnated and became a man, that's his person, but we also saw his work. The author referred to him as a champion. Do you remember that? Your version may say the author of our salvation. It's probably better rendered the champion of our salvation. And this champion defeated death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. He defeated death and Satan. How did he do it? Through suffering. So you see the connection there? I'm a first century Jewish believer. I have a lot of peer pressure. People are getting hurt. I'm hearing about, about Christians getting, getting flogged. They're losing their property. I think I'm going crazy. I'm suffering. The author says Jesus not only understands, but it was that very suffering that has brought you eternal life. Quit thinking that this suffering is coming upon you as though it's some sort of accident or that God's asleep at the wheel. If our Lord and Savior endured suffering to save us, how much more will suffering be part of the life of a Christian? Solidarity. You're not alone. You're not going crazy. Jesus understands. If last week was solidarity in incarnation... And a champion who is victorious through suffering, then these last two verses kind of cover the same thing, but with a different metaphor. This week is solidarity and incarnation, but watch this, but with a high priest, a high priest who is a mediator through substitution. And I'll explain all this. But we have a champion, the first few verses, and then the last two, we have a high priest. Now, that's bringing us up to speed for just this sermon, but what I'd like to do, especially for those of you who haven't been in Hebrews is I'd like to go back and just do a, a just a broad brush overview of what's going on here. Because I think it will help us kind of, you know, not focus on each individual tree but see the forest, see what's going on here. As I mentioned, the author is telling them to hold fast. Hold fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't go back Jesus is so much more than anything you could imagine. He is the Creator, the Redeemer, God of very God, the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of His glory, and He is so much higher than angels. Angels weren't created to rule. Man was. Man was created to be vice-regent. And God has sent Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all of our worship. But if man was created to rule, he's not doing a very good job. Because of sin, he's failed. And the author says, you're right, but Jesus did not fail, and he is the perfect man. And he not only did what was required, but he purchased a bride on the cross and now sits at the right hand of God. But you can imagine the response from the audience. It's like, but with all this suffering, it doesn't feel like he's ruling. I can't see him. And the author says, then see him in Scripture. Okay, I know that to be true, but still I feel like no one understands. I feel so alone. And the author says, Jesus understands. Let me give you another picture. Jesus, the high priest. And that's where we pick up today. If you're a suffering believer, this passage right here that's going to set up the the next several chapters gives us assurance that Jesus not only understands your suffering, not only has he experienced your suffering, but He is the only one who can enter into your suffering and help you. That'll preach, won't it? Because huh? I'll promise you, if you're not suffering now, you will. And you have. Right? So this applies to every single one of us. So we have Jesus, the mediating high priest. Look at verse 16. We'll pick up. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, circle help there, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, there's the incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I want to make this extremely practical. That sounds wrong. It is extremely practical. I don't want to get in the way of the practicality of the Word of God. Okay? Because we can get way into the weeds with a lot of this deep theology, and you know I love deep theology. But I don't think we have to sacrifice theology for practicality. So what I want to do is I want to get out of the way and let the text speak. There seems to be four things in this passage that characterize how Jesus, the mediating high priest, understands your suffering and enters into your world to help you with it. Four things. First one, he is a merciful high priest. He is a merciful high priest. He is a faithful high priest. He is a propitiatory high priest. And you're like, yeah, homiletically, Pastor, that does not work. I know, I know. But I can't give up that word, and I'll explain why. And he is a helpful high priest, those four things. You say, great, Pastor, I'm excited, I've endured suffering. I'm sure I'll have suffering again. I feel like no one understands. You're going to tell me how Jesus, the great high priest, understands. There's just one problem. I ain't Jewish, and I don't know what a high priest is. Well, come back with me to 1445 B.C. I want you to imagine that you are one of the Egyptians that decided to go with the Israelites in the Exodus. You find yourself after a year of being in the wilderness at the foothills of Mount Sinai. In a sea of two million people, you see that there's a new, a new structure that has been built, and today is a, is a very special occasion. You recognize up on a platform that that is Aaron, Aaron. Moses' brother, and that he's dressed for the occasion. You heard that he has been ordained the high priest and that his sons will serve as priests in the years to come. His role, his function, is to be a mediator between the people of Israel and Yahweh. It looks like he's wearing a, a blue robe, a tunic, a turban, and a sash. He also seems to be wearing some sort of apron, sort of a two-piece apron that that falls just below the hips and is connected at the, the shoulders. I think I heard him call it an ephod. It's made of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twisted linen. It's connected on the shoulders by two onyx stones, from what I understand, each one has the tribes of Israel written on them, six on each side. He also has a breastplate with various precious stones, 12 of them, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This man, this brother of Moses, will stand in our place before God Almighty. On his turban is a plate of pure gold that says, Holy to the Lord. It's Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The highest holy day of the year that is to be celebrated year after year in perpetuity. Aaron will take two male goats for a sin offering... And one bull for a burnt offering. But before he does anything else, Leviticus tells us he has to do something for himself. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will... What? Die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. He's allowed to do it one time, once a year, and before he goes in, he needs to take that bull. He's got two goats and a bull, and he needs to offer that bull as a burnt offering for himself. Because he is a sinful man. He may be the high priest, but he is just a man. And that is the only way he will be able to go into the Holy of Holies. Oh, there was one other thing I forgot to mention about on his garments. Around the hem of his robe, there are little bells, and they're not just for decoration. Exodus twenty-eight thirty-five says, It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord, so that he will not die meaning if we're not hearing tinkling, something's gone wrong. They would also tie a rope around one of his ankles so that if he did die, they could drag him out without endangering anyone else. Who wants to be high priest? (laughs) He then takes one of the goats and sacrifices it to the Lord. They take the other one, they lay hands on it, and they send it out into the wilderness. It is called a scapegoat. It is a picture of how the sins are laid upon this goat, never to be remembered. But the one he sacrifices, he then takes the blood and goes, we just sang, behind the veil, right? Behind the veil that leads into the Holy of Holies. And he sprinkles seven times on the mercy seat. You remember what the mercy seat is? Okay, Indiana Jones, the two angels, top of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, Right? Facing each other, that's the mercy seat. It's the lid of the ark. And it was called the sacrifice of atonement. Atonement literally means covering or to turn away God's wrath. In doing this, it was a picture of how God's wrath was to be satisfied. Are you with me on what a high priest is, right? Now, fast forward back to the book of Hebrews when it says, Jesus is our faithful, merciful, propitiatory, and helpful high priest. How does this fit? We're going to find out. Let's look and see how Jesus is, first of all, a merciful high priest. In what ways is Jesus a merciful mediator? Because at the very least, we know that a high priest is to be a mediator between God and man. He stands between them. He is the representative. Look at verse 17 again. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Well, Think about the Incarnation so far. What does it mean to be merciful? Think about Jesus. Jesus became man, 100% without giving up any of His divinity. And though free from a sin nature, nevertheless experienced the pains of a fallen world. He hungered. He thirsted. His back hurt from a long day at work. His feet got blisters from those first-century sandals that they wore. Can you imagine the food that he ate compared to what he was used to? The living accommodations. He felt the chill of a night air and the coldness of a friend-turned-enemy. He wept and felt the pain when he lost a loved one. He felt compassion when he saw a man born blind or lame. He became exhausted. He got peopled out. He became weary and discouraged and overwhelmed. But he is a merciful high priest in that he understands Everything, get this, everything you have experienced to a greater level. As a human being, yet without sin, he has experienced everything. It also says he is a faithful high priest. Now, this is interesting because as I was studying the commentaries, no one addresses how he was a faithful high priest. And, and, and I think it's evidence of the Christianese that is so much a part of our lives. We use the word faithful a lot, faith. And so, oh, of course, he's a faithful high priest. Yeah, we all know that. But I want to know, I'm looking at this, and I want to know how if I'm a hurting believer who is suffering because of my faith, how is his faithfulness an encouragement to me? And in what way was he faithful that would encourage me to be faithful? See, those are the questions we want to be asking as we approach this. This is what keeps us out of the weeds, where theology doesn't stay hermetically sealed over here, but theology is the robust fuel by which it produces practical, godly living. So how was Jesus faithful? I want to know that. Well, I don't have to wonder and I don't have to look very far to find out that though it is essential that we have a substitutionary atonement, we have a death on the cross in order to secure our salvation, we cannot forget that it was the three plus decades leading up to that that was also required to have an appropriate sacrifice. Simply speaking, Jesus had to not only be perfect but live a perfect life in order to be the appropriate sacrifice. He had to be faithful in the midst of pain, discouragement, temptation, maybe seemingly time delays. Who knows? Theologically, living that perfect life produced what was called imputation. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Put your thinking caps on right now. It's the trade, my sin, for his righteousness. Listen to Luther. He goes, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ's, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. Let me put this in practical terms. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God the paycheck for that sin is death. Dying on the cross, we're going to find out in a minute, solves the penalty. But that's only half the equation. Christ living a perfect life now imputes into us righteousness. We now stand before God, not just not guilty, but accepted and adopted. Because when he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Luther said it was a righteousness that was external to us. And so we are made righteous by Christ's faithfulness, his perfect life. Now watch this. If Christ's faithfulness produced eternal life in us, will he not carry us through until we are with him? Huh? You see what I'm saying? The imputation of that righteousness also is what carries us. That means when we do good works, when we persevere, when we stand firm against suffering, it is not we that are actually doing it, but it is Christ in us. Amen? That is so... So when someone says, oh, he was faithful, I want to know how. How is he faithful? And now that I understand how, I'm like, oh. So it's not not just that I can endure suffering, it's that as a Christian, I will endure suffering because it is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It is His righteousness. We talk about grace being the power of God to save a man. Without imputation, without Christ's faithfulness, you have only yourself to lean on. No, I, I need to know that my life and my eternity are not dependent upon me because I'm a failure. And I will fail every time. But with Christ's righteousness, I can be confident that no matter what, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can overcome. I can persevere. All right, let's look at this next one. That big word, verse 17, to make, say it with me, Propitiation. You're saying, well, my my version doesn't say that. Mine says make atonement. That's okay, but we're going to stick with propitiation because it's so pregnant with meaning, and I'll explain in a moment. Propitiation. The noun version literally means mercy seat. Isn't that interesting? We just finished talking about how Jesus is the great high priest. I showed you. Uh, Aaron as the high priest, and how he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. It would be symbolic of the atonement for the people. But of course, Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats will not save. It was a shadow. It was a picture of what is to come. This word propitiation is used by John in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur was a picture of what was to come, then what we have here with Jesus Christ as a high priest is all that Aaron is but More. What did Aaron take into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle on the mercy seat? A sinful man who had offered sacrifices for his sin went in and took the blood of a goat to put upon the mercy seat to make atonement, to satisfy the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. Jesus is not only the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the wrath satisfier. He is literally the mercy seat. Propitiation literally means wrath satisfier. That means the just wrath that was due for us, Jesus satisfied in order that mercy might be extended. Meaning if perfection is required to be in communion with God, we were never going to be able to get there. And yet we had earned this paycheck of death because of our sin. And the Son of God says, I will go pay that paycheck with my own life so that I might bring these children into fellowship. Propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God at the cross so that mercy might be extended. This is what separates the God of the Bible from every other world religion. God is not a respecter of persons. He is just, and He is merciful. John Murray writes in his book, the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of His wrath so much that He gave His own Son to the end, so that by His blood He should make provision for the removal of this wrath. When Christ is in Gethsemane, he says, if possible, let this, what? Cup pass from me. It wasn't the cup of physical suffering. It was the cup of the triune God's wrath. And yet he says, not my will, but thine be done. 1 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the encouragement this is to the suffering believers. Kent Hughes explains it. He says, quote, we are anchored by a perfect priestly propitiator. That's a tough tongue twister there. Who propitiated his own wrath on the cross so that we are no longer under the wrath of God. We may experience hardship, even discipline, but never the wrath of God. There's a bunch of reasons why it's important to understand that Jesus is a propitiatory high priest. One of them is that he understands suffering. The other one is that he you understand how much he loved you, that he was willing to die for you. When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. But there's more. And that is as tough as it may get. As horrible as it may seem, guess what? We will never, as believers, experience the wrath of God. God to live as Christ, to die as gain. We have heaven to look forward to. If you think about it, if you're not a believer, this is the only heaven you will ever know. If you're a believer, this is the only hell you'll ever know. That, that's an encouragement, no matter what you're going through. That's solidarity. That gives a clearer meaning to the statement, it is finished. The wrath of God is satisfied. Mercy is extended. And by the way, when he said, it is finished, what happened to the veil that covered the Holy of Holies? Do you remember? It ripped from the top to the bottom. Why? Because only God could do it. And he said, now you don't need a human high priest anymore. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9 says it well. He gets to do a bigger dissertation on high priest. You can look at it later. It says But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Well, look at our last one. He's also a helpful high priest. Verse 18, For since he was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Scripture tells us that Christ was tempted in all things that we are. John groups them in three different categories. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We see each one of those with his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. But no doubt he was tempted throughout his life. He stands in solidarity. Whatever you're going through, he understands. Now let's get specific. What temptation might someone experience when suffering? Well, let me ask you this. What temptation might Christ have experienced as He got closer and closer to the cross? Perhaps there even in Gethsemane. Temptation to quit. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we do with pain? We recoil in it. Make the pain stop. That's, that's human, natural response does anyone like suffering does anyone like pain if you do you've got mental problems no one likes it we're to rejoice in the midst of our pain not because of our pain I don't know what kind of guys preach that no one likes pain that's why we have aspirin and ibuprofen and all that stuff but with the cup of wrath set before Christ I imagine the temptation was to quit It doesn't say in Gethsemane, but it seems to be that he knows what awaits him and how bad it will be. Now, me understanding that, that Jesus was tempted in all things, and even as he faced suffering and death and Satan, he doesn't need this. Why did I sign up for this? There may have been temptation. How do we respond to temptation? We give in. Or we run. You say, Pastor, I get it. You say Jesus uh, was tempted in all things, but, and I've heard this over and over again, but, but Jesus is God and God can't sin, so he doesn't really understand. And I'm like, well, hold on, hold on, because the Bible makes it clear he does understand. And that what he has experienced is greater than you. So how do I reconcile this? Don't tell me you haven't thought that before. I'm looking out there. I know you all have thought that in your head. Well, I know Jesus, but, but Jesus really doesn't understand. My situation's much worse, right? Well, let me explain it this way. Just because Jesus is God and cannot sin doesn't mean he didn't experience it. And I would say it is because of that he experienced it to a greater depth and breadth than we ever will. Remember what I said? We respond by either succumbing or fleeing. We either give in to the temptation and sin, or we do like Joseph did, and we run. Jesus didn't have either option, and he endured the full breadth and depth of that temptation. He drank the cup of wrath to its bitter dregs which means he walked all the way there. He endured the full measure. He understands, and because of that, he comes to our aid. We can't forget all that. He comes to our aid. He strengthens our faith, and he's doing it in this passage, by the way. This is one way he comes to our aid. He strengthens our faith, and he gives us this perspective. So let me ask you, are you suffering? Do you feel like quitting? Now, I hope we don't, but I imagine there's a lot of us, short of quitting, feel like disengaging. And I think that's what was going on here with a lot of these Jewish believers. Sort of that neglecting is rejecting. I'm going to push away from this. You know, this whole Christian life is just costing too much. I want to leave you with two things. One, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that text, but do you know the very next words? Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We are saved, and He will persevere through us and carry us, and salvation will be consummated one day at glorification. And we will escape the wrath of God because it's been paid for. I'm going to ask Ryan to come up here, and we're going to close with a well known hymn, How Firm a Foundation. A very old one, dating back to the late 1700s. But I want to read some of these verses, and I want you to think about this text. Suffering believers, thinking no one understands. And the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Oh, Jesus understands. He is a high priest who is merciful and faithful. And he absorbed the wrath of God. And he is here to help you. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee. Thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for resp- repose, I will not. I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I shall never, no never, say it with me, though never forsake. Amen. Ryan, why don't you come up here. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I pray that this theology will inform our hearts and our minds and that our suffering would be momentary, light affliction compared to the eternal reward that awaits us. I pray that our understanding of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us, did in place of us, and continues to do for us as the great high priest, would not only warm our hearts, but would give us the strength to stand knowing that He stands in solidarity with us. It is in His name and for His great, great title, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we ask this. Amen.